0: I hope and pray that my colleagues will find the courage to join me in opposing this misguided and this dangerous bill. Oh
1: please,
2: shut up lady, seriously. Just shut up. Well I don't know why I came here tonight. Does that mean? I got the feeling something wrong. Not at all. <laughs> I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. She deserves it. And I'm wondering how I'll get stairs. Clowns to the left of me,
0: jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you.
2: I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is The broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and on Round Mountains KKRN, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso, Eugene's KEPW, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, in Rochester. New York on WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF, just to give you an idea of some of the fine uh, terrestrial affiliates who run the broadcast five days a week. We're also heard streaming coast-to-coast coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly inves- investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around... Swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Emphasis on friendly, by the way. Even though I was really, really mean to that congresswoman at the top of the show. You weren't that mean. She deserves to be, uh, yeah. Well, I, I could be meaner. Nonetheless, I am very happy to start out with some good news today. By the way, good news in addition to the good news that uh, Mark Joseph Stern is going to be joining us shortly. That is always good news. Yes, it is. But as we go to air, WNBA star Brittany Griner is finally on her way home. Russia finally freed Griner from the work camp where she had been, uh, well, arrested, detained and placed into uh, after a show trial Following some eight months of captivity in Russia, Russia freed Greiner on Thursday in a high profile prisoner exchange as the U.S. released notorious Russian arms dealer Victor Bout, but failed to win freedom for another American, Paul Whelan, who has been jailed in the former Soviet state for nearly four years now. The deal, the second in eight months amid tensions over Russia's invasion of Ukraine, secured the release of the most prominent American detained abroad and achieved a top policy goal for President Joe Biden, otherwise known as Dark Brandon. She's safe. She's on a plane. She's on
1: her way home. After months of being unjustly detained in Russia, held under intolerable circumstances, Brittany will soon be back in the arms of her loved ones, and and she should have been there all along.
2: Very good news indeed. That was President Biden speaking from the White House on Thursday, accompanied by Vice President Kamala Harris and Greiner's wife, Cheryl Greiner, who offered some remarks for her wife, BG, as well as for Paul Whelan.
3: So over the last nine months, you all have been um, so privy to one of the darkest moments of my life. And so today I'm just standing here, um, overwhelmed with emotions, but the most important emotion that I have right now is just sincere gratitude um, for President Biden and his entire administration He just mentioned this work is not easy and it has not been. There's been so many hands involved. And so um, today my family is whole, but as you all are aware, there's so many other families who are not whole. And so BG's not here to say this, but I will gladly speak on her behalf and say that BG and I will remain committed to the work of getting every American home, including Paul, whose family is in our hearts today as we celebrate BG being home. We do understand that there are still people out here who are enduring what I endured the last nine months of missing tremendously their loved ones. So thank you everybody for your support. Um, and today is just a happy day for me and my family. So um, I'm going to smile right now. <laughs> um, thank, you.
2: thank you. Thank you all very much. Greiner's release, as welcome and hard fought as it was, does come at a fairly heavy price, however. Biden's authorization to release Bout, Victor Bout, Uh, The Russian arms dealer and felon, once nicknamed the Merchant of Death, underscored the heightened urgency that the administration faced to get Greiner home, particularly after the recent resolution of her criminal case on drug charges and subsequent uh, transfer to that penal colony. Greiner, who also played pro basketball in Russia, was arrested at an airport there last February for bringing less than a gram of cannabis oil in vape cartridges into the country. She's a two-time Olympic gold medalist, a Baylor University All-American and Phoenix Mercury Pro basketball star, whose arrest in February made her the most high-profile American jailed abroad. Both Russian and U.S. officials had conveyed cautious optimism in recent weeks after months of Negotiations with Biden saying in November that he was hopeful that Russia would engage in a deal now that the midterm elections were completed. Guess they didn't want to do anything that might help Joe Biden somehow in those elections.
0: That would seem to be the uh, assumption there. Yes.
2: Even so, AP reports the uh, fact that the deal was a one for one swap was a surprise given that U.S. officials had for months expressed determination to bring home both Greiner and Paul Whelan. The Michigan corporate security executive jailed in Russia since December of 2018 on espionage charges that his family and the U.S. government say are baseless. Quote, We've not forgotten about Paul Whelan, said the uh, president during his remarks at the White House on Thursday. We will keep negotiating in good faith for Paul's release. His brother David said in a statement that he was, quote, so glad for Griner's release, but also disappointed for his own family. He credited the White House with giving the Whelan family uh, advance notice and said that he did not fault officials for making the deal that they did. He said the the Biden administration made the right decision to bring Ms. Griner home and to make the deal that was possible rather than waiting for one that wasn't going to happen, he said. Brittany Griner's status as an openly gay and married black woman locked up in a country where authorities have been hostile to the LGBTQ community injected racial, gender and social dynamics into her legal saga. Though an historic vote in the U.S. House of Representatives on Thursday, well, that also served as a reminder of Frankly, the United States own continuing, if hopefully improving, if occasionally backsliding, decades of cruel hostility toward the LGBTQ plus community. The U.S. House did give final approval on Thursday to legislation protecting same sex marriages, a landmark and frankly embarrassingly overdue in some regards step in a decades long battle for nationwide recognition of such unions that reflects a stunning turnaround in societal attitudes in this country from just a few short years ago. And, you know, I just want to sort of take a moment to, to pause here to underscore this point. When I began blogging nearly 20 years ago or so now, I covered gay rights and marriage equality issues and so forth. But even then, you know, even in the progressive blogosphere, many people, I don't know if you remember this, Desi Doyen, but they sort of decided that, well, I must be gay <laughs> at the they? time. Yeah, no, they no, no they did. I heard from because I was because I was even covering these issues And expressing outrage at the treatment of the gay community. And, you know, we didn't really call them LGBTQ back then, but, you know, just supporting their efforts to be able to marry those that they loved a whole bunch of people sort of just presumed from that coverage that I was gay, which really says something, frankly, about how far we have now gone.
0: Indeed. Indeed
2: I mean, even does. in the progressive community, some still had the idea that this was an issue that was, you know, generally covered only by people who were gay. And I don't I don't believe that I ever tried to uh, disabuse anybody of that, of their thinking one way or another, because it didn't actually matter to me.
0: Well, it's like the famous I, Seinfeld line. Not that there's anything, wrong, that with there's that.
2: anything wrong with it." Not that there's anything wrong. But I, yeah, I mean, it, to me, it didn't matter. So, uh, you know, this was an injustice that needed to be covered. Yeah. Equal I did,
0: protection before the law.
2: I did find it somewhat amusing, however. Uh, yes. If Ill- illustrative, uh, both then and now, you know that, that we so we are today celebrating an imperfect measure passed by the Congress of the United States, soon to be signed by the President of the United States to protect marriage equality in the wake of Supreme Court approval just a few short years ago in 2015, and. A recent seeming step back by the far right, corrupt, stolen and packed GOP majority on the court. I think it's worth celebrating at least a little bit, even with the measures, imperfections and the seemingly worsening fight in many aspects. Thanks to Donald Trump's racist, homophobic MAGA minions, they, too, will lose their hateful fight. I see this as just a step back. All of that hate. So uh, today, at least a victory. President Biden is expected to promptly sign the so-called Respect for Marriage Act, which requires all states to recognize same-sex marriages. A relief for hundreds of thousands of couples who have married since the Supreme Court's 2015 decision to legalize those marriages nationwide. The bipartisan legislation passed 258 to 169 in the U.S. House, with every Democrat voting in favor, along with almost 40 Republican votes, but again with 169 Republicans voting against. The bill would also protect, by the way, interracial unions by requiring states to recognize legal marriages regardless of sex, race, ethnicity or national origin. The Senate passed the bill Uh, Last week, with all Democrats and just 12 Republican votes in debate ahead of the vote, several gay members of Congress talked about what it would mean for them and their families. Congressman Chris Pappas of New Hampshire said he was set to marry, quote, the love of my life next year and that it was, quote, unthinkable that his marriage might not be recognized in some states. Congressman David Cicilline of uh, Rhode Island said that the idea of marriage equality used to be a, quote, far-fetched idea. Now it's the law of the land and supported by the vast majority of Americans. To me, this is really just standing with the Constitution, said Republican Congresswoman Ann Wagner of Missouri among the minority of Republicans who voted for the measure. She pushed back on GOP arguments that it would affect religious rights of those who do not believe in same-sex marriage. <laughs> and I guess I have to point out, none of this makes same-sex marriage mandatory for you if you do not wish to be same-sex married. <sighs> Wagner said no one's religious liberties are affected in any way, shape or form. But many of those Republicans apparently did not hear her, including her own pathetic Missouri colleague, Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler, who offered these pathetic remarks on the House floor today.
0: Mr. Speaker, I'll tell you my priority. Protect religious liberty. Protect people of faith and protect Americans who believe in the true meaning of marriage. I hope and pray that my colleagues will find the courage to join me in opposing this misguided and this dangerous bill. And I yield back.
2: Oh, please.
0: Wrought to tears by her inability to be able to discriminate against people who are not her.
2: We are not laughing with you, uh, lady. We are laughing at you. Uh, The the legislation would not require states to allow same-sex couples to marry, to be licensed to marry, as the uh, Supreme Court's 2015 Obergefell decision currently does. That part of the measure drew some criticism from some, though not all, progressives, like uh, my guest, uh, legal reporter Mark Joseph Stern, joining us momentarily. He says that this should be celebrated, not criticized by progressives. The new legislation would require states to recognize all marriages that were legal when they were performed, and it would protect current same-sex unions if the Obergefell decision were overturned. That's what the corrupt far-right activist uh, Republican Justice Clarence Thomas recently called for in his concurring opinion overturning Roe v. Wade. He called for the court to revisit their opinions on same-sex marriage and contraception. He curiously did not mention anything about, uh, you know, the, the ruling that allowed interracial marriages like his own, even though it derives from the exact same cases and constitutional protections that previously were used to protect uh, abortion as well as contraception, same-sex marriage, and so forth. It's not everything that advocates may have wanted. Passage of the legislation represents a watershed moment, however. Just a decade ago, many Republicans openly campaigned on blocking same-sex marriages. Today, more than two-thirds of the public support them. So all of this in a week when the Corrupted, stolen and packed Republican Supreme Court heard an insane case out of North Carolina where Republicans are hoping to get high court approval for a far right fringe constitutional theory called the independent state legislature theory in a case called Moore v. Harper, in which they argue The Constitution's Elections Clause gives state legislatures and only state legislatures, not secretaries of state, not governors, not state courts, not state constitutions, not even the voters of the state, the right to determine any and all state laws regarding federal elections as we discussed once again on our previous program with uh, Fair Votes' David Daly, who was in court for the uh, Wednesday oral arguments. Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island, he offered these comments via Twitter on Wednesday with the, uh, just after the high court had considered this wildly dangerous far-right proposition.
1: Today, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the Moore v. Harper case which is the case in which proponents are seeking the court to adopt what's called the Independent State Legislature Doctrine, which would give Republican-controlled state legislatures enormous power to determine the outcome of elections. In fact, it was this theory that the pro-Trump election deniers actually tried to use in courts to overthrow the election. I filed this brief in that court to point out that the folks who are showing up to argue, including what are called emiki curiae, friends of the court, were often actually involved in uh, the activities around uh, trying to defeat that election and overturn it. Indeed, some of them had been investigated and interviewed by the FBI. They were actually under investigation while making these arguments to the court. So. I hope that this will be the point where the court finally says, we've gone as far as we can go. We're not going to follow uh, our right-wing donors off this cliff, but we will see.
2: Yes, we will see. And while uh, neither my guest uh, David Daly yesterday uh, nor myself were particularly comforted by the oral arguments that played out on Wednesday at the high court, other court watchers, including my next guest, seem to be at least somewhat encouraged by what they heard. That's good news as well. The great Mark Joseph Stern of Slate.com joins us next on the broadcast for his long overdue return. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial.
0: What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks.
2: Welcome back to the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. This happened at the U.S. Supreme Court, at least in part, on Wednesday.
0: Throughout our nation's history, state legislatures enacting election laws have operated within the bounds of their state constitutions, enforced by state judicial review. Petitioners' contrary theory rejects all of this history and would wreak havoc in the administration of elections across the nation. Their theory would invalidate constitutional provisions in every single state, many tracing back to the founding. That would sow chaos on the ground as state and federal elections would have to be administered under divergent rules. And federal courts, including this court, would be flooded with new claims, often at the 11th hour in the midst of hotly contested elections. The court should adhere to the consistent practice that has governed for more than two centuries and should reject petitioners' a-textual, a-historical, and destabilizing interpretation of the elections clause.
2: Finally, the blast radius from their theory would sow elections chaos, forcing a confusing two-track system with one set of rules for federal elections and another for state ones. Case after case would wind up in this court with a political party on either side of the V. That would put this court in a difficult position instead of leaving it to the 50
0: states. So is it your argument that the state constitution has no role to play, period?
2: in terms of imposing substantive limits Mm -hmm.
4: on the exercise of that federal function that is our position.
2: It seems that every answer you give is to get you what you want, but it makes little sense. What I don't understand is the question that Justice Jackson asked you, which is if judicial review is in the nature of ensuring that someone's acting within their constitutional limits. I don't see anything in the words of the Constitution that take that power away from the states. Well, look harder, Justice Sotomayor, because a bunch of what used to be far right Republicans, including several of them on your very own court, Madam Justice, who now seem to be in what has become the mainstream of the GOP, well, they see those words in the Constitution. That was just a few minutes from Wednesday's oral argument in Moore v. Harper, a case in which Republicans argue that state Supreme Courts, just like the one in North Carolina, which found the Republican state legislature had violated the state Constitution with their extreme partisan gerrymandering of U.S. House districts, well, those state Supreme Courts, according to this argument, have absolutely no power to interpret. That state constitution when it comes to rules and procedures for federal elections as created by state constitutions. Those legislatures, not governors, not secretaries of state, not even state supreme courts interpreting state constitutions, can override a state legislature's power to create any and all election rules that they wish for federal elections. They should have the right uh, to invoke extreme gerrymanders unless federal law mandates otherwise. And they can even select whoever the hell they want to be the state's presidential electors, no matter what even the voters have to say about it. That is how these right wingers at the U.S. Supreme Court on Wednesday argued the U.S. Constitution's Elections Clause that mandates, quote, the times, places and manner of holding elections, For senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. That's how they argue that all of this must suddenly be interpreted after 233 years since the Constitution was enacted by the framers. Who knew? After three hours of oral arguments at the Supreme Court on Wednesday, only one thing is certain. If the justices want to blow up federal elections, they will have nothing to hide behind. Not history, not logic, and certainly not the Constitution, argues Mark Joseph Stern, Slate.com's longtime champion legal journalist. The three lawyers defending democracy methodically dismantled the independent state legislature theory from every conceivable conceivable angle, he reports, debunking each myth, misreading and misrepresentation deployed to prop it up. They bested the conservative justices who tried to corner them, identifying faulty reasoning and bogus history with devastating precision. Well, that sounds encouraging, but... Will any of that prevent these shameless, corrupt right wingers rammed onto the high court from doing the wrong, unconstitutional thing anyway? Joining us now to discuss this ridiculous, frankly, but wildly dangerous case and much more is Mark Joseph Stern, our old friend. Oh, Mr. Stern, it has been too long, but thank you, sir, for joining us again today.
4: Of course. Always a pleasure. Happy to be back, as always.
2: I, I want to get your thoughts on Moore v. Harper, if only because, frankly, you seem to have come away from the oral arguments with much more confidence, Mark, about where all of this is going than than I did. But... Since we saw House passage on Wednesday of the bill that was already passed in the U.S. Senate to protect marriage equality, the so-called Respect for Marriage Act, that's now on its way to the president's desk. You argued last month that that bill was worthy of not just support, but celebration, because we had a number of progressives who actually opposed this measure, saying it didn't go far enough. Your article at Slate on uh, on this is headlined "Progressive Critics Are Wrong About the Senate's Landmark Marriage Equality Bill." That is good to hear. Where do those critics and and I should note here, Mark is is a progressive himself. Where do those progressive critics uh, get it wrong on this one, Mark?
4: Yeah, as a as a progressive in a same-sex marriage, I feel like <laughs> yes. I have some skin in the game here.
2: Uh-huh.
4: Um, there have been two main lines of progressive uh, criticism against the Respect for Marriage Act. The first is that it includes overbroad religious protections for opponents of marriage equality, and the second is that it doesn't go far enough to protect marriage equality. I think both of those are wrong. Uh, The first is just not uh... something that i think anyone should be concerned about with this supreme court and given oral arguments earlier this week in the in the big uh, anti-gay discrimination case mm-hmm. you know the federal courts are going to do whatever they want in terms of legalizing discrimination against gay people this is not really in congress's hands but even if it were this bill would not change a thing because all it does is say that nonprofits and religious institutions So think like a church, Mm -hmm. uh, a synagogue, or some kind of explicitly religious organization, Mm -hmm. that they cannot be uh, penalized under this law for discriminating against same-sex couples, which is already the law of the land under the federal government and in all 50 states. So that changes nothing. (laughs) And turning to the second criticism, that it doesn't go far enough, I mean, I I get it, because ideally what we would have here is a bill that forces all 50 states to license uh, same-sex marriages Mm -hmm. on equal terms as opposite-sex marriages. But the problem is that's clearly not possible. Under really long-standing precedent that does go back to before the court was super, super conservative, the court has said that the, the federal government, Congress, cannot force or commandeer state legislatures to pass certain kinds of laws uh or to um to, to, to make state officials engage in certain federal functions. Mm. And so the best that Congress could do here was ensure that the federal government recognizes same sex marriages and, and mm. that is a, a key part of this bill, repealing DOMA, and also force every state to recognize same sex marriages even if they refuse to license them. And that is a key distinction because the, the US Constitution has a full faith in credit clause that requires every state to abide by Congress's determination of which kinds of documents and certifications and legal papers uh, states must recognize as valid from other states. So under this bill, if you live in Texas, Uh, and Obergefell gets overturned, and Mm -hmm. marriage equality is is up to the states again, Mm -hmm. then Texas can refuse to license your same-sex marriage. But if you go next door to New Mexico, Mm -hmm. get married, and bring back your license to Texas, then Texas has to give it full faith and credit and recognize and respect your marriage and all rights arising from marriage, including the right of parentage and custody over children within the marriage. Mm. So, you know, it's not 100 percent. It's not what I think we would see in an ideal world. But Mm. it goes as far as the courts could conceivably allow. And so I certainly think it is worth celebrating. So
2: they couldn't have Congress couldn't have compelled them uh, to all 50 states to license Uh, same-sex marriage, because that would have been uh, unconstitutional in some fashion?
4: Yeah, it's this idea, it's called the anti-commandeering doctrine. Uh It's this idea that Congress can't force state legislatures to pass or not pass certain laws. I mean, the most prominent example here is the federal ban on sports betting. We've all seen sports betting take off over the last few years. Mm -hmm. That's actually because there was for many years a federal ban that prohibited state legislatures from, uh, f- from legalizing sports betting, mm-hmm. and the Supreme Court struck down that law and said, well, you can't actually, Congress can't tell state legislatures what laws they can and cannot pass. If Congress wants to regulate sports betting itself, then it can, but it can't get involved in state legislative business. Gotcha. And, and that was not a controversial decision at the time. It was. Seven to two. Alina Kagan joined the majority. So we're not talking about a fringe theory here. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a a pretty well-respected and entrenched principle.
2: And can this uh, particular measure, can it be challenged? Well, I guess anything can be challenged. But uh, would there be any basis for challenging it or undoing it by our radical, corrupted U.S. Supreme Court?
4: There's always a possibility that the Supreme Court can strike down anything at once, right? Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court has no checks. Clearly,
2: clearly, down. yeah.
4: We, we've decided that the concept of checks and balances no longer applies to the, to the federal judiciary. Yeah. So I wouldn't go as far as to say that the Supreme Court can't possibly strike it down. Um, but uh, it would be very difficult for the Supreme Court to strike it down, and, and I'll tell you why. This power that Congress is exercising, the full faith and credit power... Um, That is something that Congress does a lot. Uh, And to give one really prominent example, there's a federal law that requires every state to recognize child custody determinations that are decided in another state. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is because previously somebody would be denied custody in Louisiana, move to another state, and start the proceedings all over again. Mm-hmm. So Congress came in and said, no, we need one standard. Every state has to recognize child custody determination once it's been made. Mm-hmm. And if, if this Supreme Court strikes down the Respect for Marriage Act saying that it exceeds the full faith and credit power, it would have to strike down that law, too. And also it's a bunch of other really important laws that ensure that basically estranged parents can't kidnap their children or try to undo divorces in right. other jurisdictions. It would be a huge mess that I don't think the Supreme Court wants to create.
2: Not even this one. I hope you're right. Uh, speaking of fringe theories and our and uh, our radical, con- corrupted uh, uh, Supreme Court, uh, you were a lot more in. Encouraged, it sounds like, from what you heard during oral arguments on Wednesday in Moore v. Harper than I was, I believe. And you and I, we've we've talked about this case uh, over the past year or so. It finally came up for a hearing. As AP reported, as they saw it, they said at least six Supreme Court justices sounded skeptical of making a broad ruling that would leave the state legislatures virtually unchecked when making rules for elections for Congress and the president but our guest yesterday on the program David Daly he's a gerrymandering expert and author he was at the court for the oral arguments. He took issue with AP He said that there were, he saw three justices who were opposed. Uh, uh, the Liberals, Jackson, Sotomayor, and Kagan. He saw three who seemed very much on board in Thomas, Gorsuch, and Alito, and three that he described as, quote, not skeptical, but as independent state legislature curious. Uh, Adding, I don't think they were looking for a way to knock a bonkers theory down. Now, based on your coverage, it sounds like you're a bit closer to the AP camp on seeing six skeptical justices, Mark.
4: Well, <laughs> you know, I, I, I respect David a great deal, uh-huh. and I completely understand what he's saying. I think we should take a step back and talk about why there are a lot of options that the court could could pursue here, mm-hmm. which makes it difficult to make a really firm prediction. Okay. So th- this idea, as you said, is that state legislatures can basically rig elections, set all the rules for federal elections, gerrymander, suppress voting rights, And state courts can't stop them under the state Constitution. Mm -hmm. Even though we have a ton of rules in every single state's constitution that have been enforced for 230 plus years, uh, this theory says that all of those are invalid. We've been (laughs) doing it wrong the whole time. I only heard maybe two votes for that position. And that's the position that North Carolina Republicans were pursuing. Mm -hmm. And that's the position that Donald Trump rested on in his failed coup attempt. Mm -hmm. So I think it's good that there are not even, you know, four votes for a maximalist theory. But then once you get into the more sort of compromised positions, it gets harder to gauge. And so it's like, I don't think the court's going to totally cut out state constitutions and state statutes from federal elections. I don't think that the court's going to go as far as North Carolina Republicans want. I think that there's a chance that the court could issue a decision that is bad, but not catastrophic. Mm. That essentially says that as a general principle, state courts can regulate uh, uh, elections, but that federal courts get to kind of double check their work and decide if they got it wrong, which would be... Bad. I mean, that's not how this has worked for 230 years. Well, it's let, ridiculous.
2: Let, let me jump in on that, Mark. Isn't that sort of how it is in theory anyway, that the state courts get to look at a you know, decision, uh, review it based on the state constitution? And if the decision is so egregious at the state Supreme Court, then, yeah, you can go to the Supreme Court. How is How would that be any different from, so, from what we have now?
4: You're exactly right. And the question is you use the word egregious, right? Mm-hmm. So the question is what exactly the standard would be. How bad or how crazy or how you know indefensible would the state court decision have to be for a federal court to intervene? Now, Republicans, people who endorse this crazy theory, they don't think it has to be bad at all. They think that federal courts should basically just review this what we say in the law, de novo in the first instance. Just ignore what state courts said. There are others uh, who say, well, there should be some deference, but federal courts should still take a hard look. And then there is the broader sort of principle, which, as you pointed out, is basically where we are now. That. Federal courts only get to intervene when it's totally insane, when the decision has no basis in state law or state constitution, and it's clearly a rogue court. Mm. And I think we will land somewhere in that spectrum. And the closer that we land to the status quo, the better, Mm -hmm. because we really do not want federal courts to turn every single little election dispute into a major case of federal constitutional law. That would be very bad. That would essentially turn the U.S. Supreme Court into an elections tribunal every single cycle. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that, that Kavanaugh and Roberts and Barrett were, were very afraid of. Mm. Um, but we have to be, I think, when this decision comes down, Really vigilant about drawing any conclusions before we figure out exactly where they land. Because if it's egregious, then fine, I'm happy with that. You know, I can live. If it's just mild deference to state courts, that's no good. Because that is really not how we do things in this country. State courts have the final say over meaning of state law in almost all circumstances. And if we take that away, then it's just empowering this conservative supermajority on SCOTUS. To decide all of these cases in favor of Republicans.
2: Which is a sort of one of the fears that I have. I mean, Roberts is going to try to find uh, that supposed narrow middle ground, as he always, you know, claims to try. But in fact, that middle ground doesn't seem to be so narrow, ultimately, because it always seems to lead eventually to the very same radical far-right conclusion that, you know, the, 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 the most right-wing folks were trying to get to in the first place. So it feels like if this is not outright rejected, that that would be, you know, we would find that middle ground and we would just head down that path. Is there a possibility that this can simply be outright rejected, that Amy Coney Barrett, I can't believe we have to rely on her, but she would say, no, this case, we shouldn't even be hearing this case?
4: Um, possibly, actually. I do think that Barrett asked some questions that suggested she didn't even think that this case should be heard at the Supreme Court, partly on sort of technical jurisdictional grounds, partly on the substance. Um, but I think it's possible that you could get Barrett and Roberts to join with the liberals in some decision that basically says, okay, if the state court decision is so egregious that it's indefensible, mm-hmm. then we're, we, we can take it up. But anything short of that, we're not getting involved, which again would essentially be the status quo. But you know, if they go any further than that, as you just said, they're empowering these crazy judges on the lower courts, like in the Fifth Circuit, to take that decision and manipulate it into a doctrine that just means republicans always win, right? We know how Trump judges on the Fifth Circuit Mm -hmm. are going to exploit and manipulate a decision that gives them any kind of leeway here because they already have, even though this decision hasn't even come down. They tried to shut down drive-through voting in Texas in 2020. Mm-hmm. After that, uh, they issued a decision saying that it was illegal, suggesting that those votes were illegal and shouldn't be counted. And that's the kind of little thing like voting procedures that election officials have to deal with every single cycle. This should not be a federal constitutional case. That should be a dispute for state courts to work out quickly and definitively. We do not want Trump judges stepping in at every turn.
2: I, you know, I was, I, uh, I'm not a a legal expert i'm a layman uh you're the legal expert but i have been able to watch or listen to supreme court arguments in the past and at least follow them enough you know without any legal training this one i'll tell you it seems so convoluted and so complicated at least the response from the petitioners here arguing in favor of this case that that was sort of my cue that you know what It seems like they don't have much of a case if it needs to be that confusing. uh, Am I off base there? I mean, when they would say, uh, well, we'll take some cases, not others. The legislature is defined as this in some cases like that in others. To me, that sounds, am I overreading it to sound like they don't have a good case here?
4: I mean, I don't think so. And I think one of the best examples here is them trying to slice the salami between state courts and governors, right? So in many states, the legislature draws congressional districts, Mm -hmm. and the governor has an opportunity to veto them, right? Mm -hmm. And the Supreme Court has said that that is perfectly constitutional for a very long time, for like more than 100 years, and everyone agrees on that. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, well, wait a minute. A governor is not the legislature. So if you're really saying that only the legislature gets to do this, then, how in the world are you going to say that a governor can have a me- really important involvement here, not just in vetoing, but in telling the, the legislature, you know, what kind of maps he'll accept in the next time around? Right. And that's a point that Amy Coney Barrett brought up, uh, you know, quite rightly, that I think just sort of shatters the whole case here. It's like you are building up this galaxy brain theory. Legislature <laughs> means legislature, it means the specific political body of representatives. That, you know, represent the, the people of a state, which by the way is not what it meant when the Constitution was ratified. Mm-hmm. There were v- many different definitions of a legislature. It was generally considered to be the body that makes the laws, which can include the people acting as a whole. Yes. Um, but, you know, I, I just don't think you can create a consistent theory here without carving out so many exceptions to acknowledge reality and precedent that your entire theory falls apart.
2: And and that's sort of what they were doing. They had so many exceptions, it seemed to me. Well, if it's this, then it's that. I mean, there would be so many tests for, you know, what could actually be brought before the court that it seems like it breaks the entire uh, scheme. Um, and yeah. yeah. I, I
4: just want to add briefly, like... Yeah. That is why the Supreme Court decided that it couldn't strike down partisan gerrymanders in the 2019 decision in Rucho versus Common Cause. The court said, well, there's too many big questions here. There's not enough standards that we can use to apply consistent decisions. So we're just going to say that this can't be decided by federal courts. Why is this not the exact same situation? Why is it not even worse than that situation? Because here, the the people who are raising this argument themselves, the North Carolina Republicans, they can't agree on what they mean and what they say. (laughs) So if this court has any consistency or principle, then it should use that same reasoning to say, you know, we're not going to mess with this because whatever the merits of the original constitutional argument, there is no way for this court to
2: apply it in a fair way. Well, that point about if this court has any uh, consistency uh, is one of my concerns. Uh, Before important caveat, yes, and I don't know if you can do this quickly or not. But uh, all of this, making all of this ridiculous argument even more absurd, is that it is based apparently on a fraudulent document, the Pinckney Plan. I don't know if it's easy to explain this Pinckney Plan controversy when it comes to this uh, so-called independent legislature. Theory...
4: I mean, basically, this was a fraudulent document that purported to be an account of the Constitutional Convention and the goals of the Constitutional Convention that supported the independent state legislature theory that was uh, circulating in the early 1800s. And as early as, I believe, 1819, James Madison, who actually did write the definitive account of the Constitutional Convention, Mm -hmm. said, this is fake, and yet (laughs) it has continued to circulate. It made an appearance in Chief Justice John Roberts' dissent in a case very similar to these in 2015. Wow. I made an appearance in the uh, nonsense scholarship and legal briefing that supports the independent state legislature theory, and it's just a bogus document. I mean, it's a fraud. It's like definitively been proved to be a fraud for many, many years, and yet these so-called originalists are still relying on it to make their case, which, which tells you what a lack of actual authentic historical support they have that they are turning to a document that's not just contested, but accepted to
2: Yeah, of course, it also underscores the historical uh, originalist basis for phony, fraudulent hoaxes. Uh, So be be careful, Uh, Mark. Last before I let you go, uh, I can't even believe we're still doing this. But on Monday, the Supreme Court heard an argument on behalf of a Colorado web designer who does not want to be forced to have to create a website for gay weddings. Why is this case even stupider than it sounds? And is there nothing that this particular Supreme Court cannot say no to at this point?
4: So I'm going to take issue with the way you described it just a little to, to, to clarify exactly how stupid it is. Okay. So this website designer has never been asked by any couple, gay or straight, right. to make a wedding website for them. Yet she sued before anyone could ask her and argued that Colorado's civil rights law was infringing on her freedom of speech because it would force her to make a wedding website. However, the state of Colorado informed her and has stuck to this position that it would not require her to create a wedding website for a same-sex couple. It has said instead that this law only covers products and services in the sense that she can she is only required to sell an existing website template mm-hmm. to a same-sex couple if they ask for it. So let's say she creates a wedding website mm-hmm. template and puts it online. In, at that point she cannot tell a same-sex couple that she will not sell them the template. But if a couple comes to her, gay or straight, and says we want you to create this special website for us, we have all these ideas, here's the design, here's what we wanted to say, Colorado says she is free to turn them down under all circumstances, that the law does not apply to that situation. But that is the lie at the heart of this case. That is what her lawyers claim Colorado would force her to do. That is what the justices will probably claim Colorado would force her to do. But it is not true. No one is asking her to create anything for anyone. All Colorado says is that once you have created a product, you have to sell it to anyone who asks.
2: Which is just. Uh, uh... <laughs> You know, I, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of cases brought to the Supreme Court each year. Begging that other question that I, I think you didn't ask is answer: Is there nothing that they will say <laughs> no to at this point? It seems so obviously not ripe for uh, oral for argument at the Supreme Court.
4: I, I think the real breaking point here, for me at least, was last term in the praying Coach case, and we talked yes. about that extensively. You yes. know, the Supreme Court just made up these facts about this coach claimed that he was engaged in silent private prayer at this public school when in fact he was leading these massive prayer circles with dozens of students and members of the school you know Neil Gorsuch in his opinion he just lied about it flat out and so I think the answer is no like there's no case this court won't take when it has an agenda and it wants to pursue a certain policy goal you know if it really wants to say, tear down the separation of church and state, it'll just manipulate the facts. If it really wants to legalize anti-gay discrimination, it'll just manipulate the facts. It only needs a case that is somewhere in the ballpark of what it wants, and it will finesse that case to to be the vehicle that it needs to radically change American law.
2: They are the activist jurists that they used to pretend (laughs) to abhor. got it mark joseph stern covers the law of the court system uh, supreme court and eh, election law LGBTQ Q issues and so much more at slate.com you should read him every day you should follow him on the twitters as long as they exist at mjs underscore dc always great speaking with you my friend look forward to the next time
4: always a pleasure talk to you soon thank
2: you sir okay quick break and i i don't even think i mentioned this at the top of the show des but uh Your Green News Report, your latest one. (laughs) Yes, it is. That's coming up next on your Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Looking down my list here of uh, my cheat sheet of stories in your Green News Report, Desi Doyen. And And there uh, are a lot. Not good. That one's not good. That one's not good. There's a good one. Oh, that's a, (laughs) there's an excellent one. You
0: betcha. Hold to the end to find out. A
2: little of each in our latest Green News Report.
0: Humanity has become
4: a weapon of mass extinction.
0: UN Biodiversity Summit seeks to reverse the rapid decline of nature. International Olympic Committee grapples with global warming impact on winter games. Plus, renewable energy will overtake coal by 2025, report says. Really? Yeah.
2: All of those fascinating stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman.
0: And I'm Desi Doyen.
2: Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment
0: there are new rules to prevent any uh, methane leaks here at home but yet we're all we're allowing them to drill and continue uh, to process oil down in venezuela yeah
2: you tell them fox news where does america get off allowing other people to drill for oil in their own country this is your green news report Okay, Desi Joy, and it seems like every... Well, two or four years now we're worried about having enough snow at Winter Olympics. Is that what we're worrying about again?
0: Oh yes, we are. The International Olympic Committee has delayed selection of the host city for the 2030 Winter Games while it considers ways to overhaul the Winter Games amid the accelerating impacts of man-made global warming, which has caused widespread declines in global snow and ice cover. The IOC is considering proposals to establish a rotating pool of host cities that would have to meet temperature criteria and be able to reliably sustain venues for snow competition.
2: So one of the problems is there's only a few venues at this point that are actually cold enough to be able to host a Winter Olympics?
0: To be able to consistently host the Winter Olympics. And that is a growing problem. Hmm. A new report by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development warns that if governments fail to act swiftly to cut emissions, overshooting the 1.5 degrees Celsius temperature target in the Paris Climate Agreement may, quote, push the Earth over several tipping points, leading to irreversible and severe changes in the climate system. The report warns that if triggered, those tipping point impacts would, quote, cascade through socioeconomic and ecological systems, leading to Severe effects on human and natural systems And challenging humanity's ability to adapt In Montreal, the UN Biodiversity Conference kicked off this week Billed as one of the most important events for life on Earth World governments hope to hash out a major treaty To reverse the decline of nature And to conserve the species and ecosystems On which all life depends And the benefits they provide Okay,
2: that... That does sound somewhat important.
0: A major target is to conserve at least 30% of Earth's land and sea habitats by 2030. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres warned that degraded ecosystems will cost the world $3 trillion annually by 2030. And he bluntly called out humanity's insatiable appetite for economic growth that has polluted the land, water, and air with chemicals, pesticides, and plastics. That
2: guy has nothing but good news. We are treating nature like a toilet, and ultimately, we are committing suicide by proxy. Because the loss of nature and biodiversity comes with a steep human cost, a cost we measure in lost jobs, Hunger, diseases, and deaths. Told you he's nothing but chuckles.
0: Well, the biggest question at the conference is who will pay for it? Poorer nations and indigenous communities now harbor most of the world's remaining biodiversity, but they must also find ways to grow their economies and fight poverty. But some good news. Global renewable power capacity is set to grow as much in the next five years as it has grown over the past two decades. Really? As governments accelerate the shift to cheap, clean, stable renewable energy driven by Russia's war in Ukraine that caused fossil fuel prices to soar. The new forecast by the UN-affiliated International Energy Agency projects that renewable energy will become the world's top source of electricity in the next three years. Solar capacity is poised to surpass natural gas and coal within five years and become the largest energy source in the world. But the IEA report and others all tell the same story. Renewables are transforming the world, but they are not doing it fast enough. According to the IEA, the world needs to deliver at least a quarter more growth in renewables than is currently projected to be on track to limit man-made global warming to no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial temperatures. And finally, this week marked the first ever U.S. auction of offshore wind leases to develop commercial-scale floating wind farms in the deep waters off the California coast. The auction raised an astonishing $757 million, mostly from European countries that have expertise with floating wind farms. Experts say the potential for the technology is huge in areas of strong wind off America's coasts.
2: Very cool. For much more on all of those stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. And this has been your Green News Report. Everyone knows it's windy. Yeah. It is. And because it's windy... The U.S. gets to make almost a billion dollars just because it's windy off the west coast of California. We can lease out the uh, the energy rights essentially.
0: Exactly, and the cool thing about that is that as this offshore wind energy program grows on both the Pacific coast and the uh, Atlantic coast, it's going to continue to make money for the federal government and the taxpayers. But you know, just these two little leases that were sold—I call them little—they're not that little. Just those two leases will. Power 1.5 million homes. So the more the merrier, and that will just continue this uh, very fast acceleration toward the renewable energy takeover.
2: Uh, Speaking of additional good news, as you were talking, Desi Doyen, the Justice Department is asking a federal judge to hold Donald Trump in contempt of court. For failing to comply with a subpoena issued this summer, ordering the former president to turn over records marked classified, according to two sources familiar with the matter, as reported by CNN. Nice. So uh, that's interesting, ain't it? And I'm glad (laughs) we got that in because, uh, as it turns out, I I will not be here for the next broadcast. I've got to get some uh, dental surgery done yet again. If all goes well, I will see you on the next broadcast thereafter, but uh, glad to get that bad news in about Donald Trump before I go. Uh, my thanks to our producer, Desi and to my guest today, the great Mark Joseph Stern of Slate.com, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. We hope it wasn't wasted. We hope you had a good time. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible, no paywall at all, made possible by those of you who support our work by hitting one of those donate buttons at bradblog.com or going straight to bradblog.com donate. To help me pay for the dentist. Alright, <laughs> you can drop me email. I'm Bradcast at Bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. That is it. We will see you at all of the above. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. And Windy has stored the eyes, but flash as the south.